and were really good at demonizing people. So much of the South was quickly becoming demonized by Northern Protestants. I almost said Northern Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, still true. It's still so true. true. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good evening. Uh, salutations, good sir. Or, <laughs> good morning, sir. <laughs> we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateur's best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, I'm not even going to ask. We're getting into Lincoln again today, aren't we? Technically, you asked because there's a question mark at the end of that paragraph. Ah, you got me again. I got to get better at this every time. But since you've <laughs> uh, since you've so kindly brought it up, yes, we are apparently allegedly uh, getting into Lincoln again today. And why you wanted to drag this nonsense out into two parts is truly beyond me. Well, my thinking goes like this: Andrew Jackson got two parts, or three, or uh, two. I don't remember, and I'm not checking. This is just how you go through life, isn't it? Anyway, why do you end up always covering, like, the communists or American stuff or whatever? What's the deal? There's there's, there's literally a world beyond America. I don't know if you want to know this, but there's a whole world out there to explore, and yet we're always doing Americans or some, like, weird commie bastard. Well, you know, as you know, I tried to expand with Swedenborg, uh, but then I expanded into another dimension where time has no meaning and history doesn't matter at all. Well, that's just Illinois. But I mean, seriously, like we need to you need to broaden it out. You're like a volume knob that has two settings, the last 300 years or cosmic infinity of time and space. Well, you'll be happy to know I'm really getting into Egypt and pyramids. <laughs> I'll have something to present soon, I promise. Oh, good. I'm looking forward to our special on King Tut. But in any case, yeah. I sincerely hope this isn't getting into some weird like great Tartaria nonsense again. Well, according to that theory, the American Civil War was a psyop to cover up a global nuclear war. So, if we go the Tataria route, uh, this episode would be really short. And let me guess, the American Civil War was also Julius Caesar's rise to power. Possibly. <laughs> well, in any case, we should probably then just, let's, let's talk about Tataria. We can be out of here in a few minutes. After all, I've got a flight to catch and give me time to pick up some lunch in the airport. Not so fast, George. We have to be serious here. This man was a patron request, after all. And speaking of patrons, we have a lot of updates for everybody about that. But I put that in the script, but we already did that. <laughs> yeah, so we've we've got our, our Patreon thing now, and people have special names. But nobody's requested a special name yet! So we're just going to call them Shovelbearer, First Name, etc. Until they come up with, like, a cool name. Like, uh, did I tell you what one patron decided they wanted to be named? No, I've got a I've got a spreadsheet and everything now. By the way, wow, selling out, selling out to the man. Yeah, so like you could you there's people who are like time monarchs, like like Jacob, of course, but he hasn't picked a patron name. And then there's the grand patrons, um, Hel Helga and Eugene. They haven't picked a name, but then grand patron Adam decided to call himself grand patron Horatio Gilgamesh of New Zealand, which is great. It's better than Grand Patron Adam. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. I like I like Her New Zealand. Horatio Gilgamesh of New Zealand. Uh, 
we'll find a way to bestow this honor upon people, maybe like a knighting ceremony, like no agenda or something. But this is all very new, and it's been a lot of fun um, to do all this patron stuff. And again, I would like to just put put it put it right out there in the front, you know. Thanks to all the shovel bearers, lore keepers, grand patrons, and time monarchs out there, and those of you who choose to simply pay the ferryman, that's awesome too. We're good. We've been working on a lot of extra content to go up on the Patreon. So far, so good. People seem to like it, and I just wanted to maybe just let you guys know that this is part of my um, escape route from <laughs> corporate slavery. <laughs> um, uh, that's only half joking. I am trying to expand my income streams so I can do more of this stuff that I'm really good at. And uh, you patrons are partially making that possible. So good on you, patrons. And with that, I think it's probably time to head down to the history lab and get to part two of Abraham Lincoln. What do you think? Sounds good. Hammerhand Lincoln. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> This time on We Talk About Dead People, we cover the only American presidency that led to a civil war. So far. And now, Abraham Lincoln hits the campaign trail in more ways than one. Will he become the president and doom the world forever? Find out today on We Talk About Dead People. So, George, if you could change anything about the American Civil War, what would it be? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I think I would slightly rearrange the map of where the battle happens so that there or where the where the battles happen so that there wouldn't be as much congestion on a couple roads uh due to tourists that I have to travel down sometimes. Yeah, that would yeah. probably I think that would be my change is just slightly rearrange the map to shift traffic patterns. Hmm. And you would know about that stuff since you are from the area. By the area, you mean America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nope, that would definitely, that would definitely be. So those, those RVs, man, like they, people drive them like it's a two-door sports car. And it's not. Wait, are, RVs? What are you talking about? Recreational vehicles. Well, yeah, yeah. But why are you bringing up RVs? Because <laughs> traffic patterns. That's what I was saying. Oh. I, yeah, like oh. they they congest the roads like you wouldn't believe in the Northeast during the summer. Oh, I see what you're saying. I thought you were talking about. I, I don't know what I thought you were talking about. I'm a little spacey today. <laughs> yeah, no, I would change the map of the battles a little bit to route more of the tourist traffic down the interstate system and off the roads that I have to drive down. That sounds. Um... In fact, I would just move all the battles to large interstate intersections. Nice. It'd be convenient for everyone. <laughs> they could just like they could have a drive-through, a drive-through I've, Civil War memorial. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> you can get a you can get a musket ball with your with your Big Mac or something. <laughs> That's the America that Abraham Lincoln died for. <laughs> Spoiler alert: He died. A bullet in the Big Mac. <laughs> Uh, no, I think if I was going to change anything Would about the Would you like civil... some freedom fries with your McLincoln? <laughs> the, the McLincoln. It's just one. On the, the top part of the bun is just very, very tall. 
And the tomato <laughs> slice is oversized, so it's like the brim of a top hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, maybe I'm la- I'm just a little bit slap happy today. I'm, I'm in a good mood, and I just had an Americano not so long ago, so I'm feeling very American. But yeah, if I had to change anything about the Civil War, it would not be the roads. I think I would change... Um, I think I would change it into global thermonuclear war. Uh, because then the Tartarian narrative would be true, and uh, that would be hilarious. (laughs) If the John Levi's of the world were right. (laughs) So what does the Tartarian narrative make of the greatest greatest pyramid of them all, the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee? Like, is that actually Uh, ancient? I assume so. It was just hidden, right? Like, they dug it up and they turned it into a Bass it, Pro Shop. It ascended from the mud of the Mississippi River. Is that yeah, the Mississippi was, River? I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know where the Bass Pro Shop is. There, there, are, there are a lot of rivers in the, in the U.S. I can't remember if the Mississippi River is the one that goes by Memphis. You know, it's funny. Um, at work, there's, there is this guy, um, pretty, pretty cool dude, but he went up like 10 points in my head because I once saw him wearing a Bass Pro Shop hat. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I just like, oh, look, <laughs> Bass Pro Shop. That guy knows what he's about. <laughs> but I think that's probably enough enough banter to get us into the Yes, episode. it is the Mississippi that flows through Memphis. <laughs> I have Googled Well, good. It. It, I'm well, glad. To be perfectly honest, what I actually Googled looking here at the tab is Memphis Bass Pro Shop Miss <laughs> Sipple River <laughs> Miss Sipple River Miss Sipple River Learn to spell <laughs> But yet I got my answer that the the Miss Sipple River does in fact flow through Memphis so who's the real winner here Thank you Google <laughs> And on that note, computer, once again, will you please bring up Hammerhand Lincoln? And the Mississippi River. And the Mississippi River. There we go. So, George, if you would be so kind, would you please describe the image below? It better not be him wearing a proton pack again. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. All right, well, what we have here appears to be a poster for mm. a musical published by Blodgett and Bradford. <laughs> Two, yeah. 209 Main Street, Buffalo, New York. Seems to be a musical about Honest Old Abe with a song and chorus. Wow. Music yeah. by A Wide Awake. Is that a is that a band? Uh yes, did they did they have bands in the 19th century. Yes, they um, did, man. Okay, and um, <laughs> I knew that. And they had to play words in gazebos though. <laughs> by J.G. Wentworth, eight seven seven Cash Nap. No, D. Wentworth Esquire, eight seven seven choruses now. Um. So anyway, this is sort of a yeah gray of a, a fading poster for an old timey musical. About honest old Abe with a uh, a picture of him looking slightly more respectable than usual, um, with a, a vibrant full head of hair, a kind of a kind of a large honker. If we're gonna be honest about his nose, it's very <laughs> prominent. 
um, sternly looking to the left, gazing at the horizon with determination, um, and a slightly askew, flappy bit on his collar, kind of doing its own thing. Um, but I think that was sort of the that was sort of the look back then. Um, yeah, mm. so it's a yeah poster about Honest Old Abe's musical. It's very exciting mm. here. Yes, this is actually a a uh, cover of a uh, song, a campaign song that they made for Abraham Lincoln. Um, and I wouldn't read the lyrics, but it has the N word in it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, there we so go. That's, and that's it wasn't. A, let me, that's a classic that JG cl- Wentworth move, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. Um, this is a song in support of Lincoln, and it has some naughty words in it. So there's that. Uh, and it was composed by his, uh, I think it was his campaign manager. Um, I mean, it's a good tune. Don't get me wrong. I'm just not going to read the lyrics in the air because we're going to be touching some sensitive stuff today, and I do not want to start off that way. So anyway, I thought the I thought it was cool to put this in here just because it's... It's it's interesting to think that we had campaign song, right? Like we have ads today, we have speeches, but we don't have songs. Can you imagine if like Biden had a song? There, I don't know, man. That that song in Spanish from the last election. N- what song? Oh, wait. Yeah, the 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 I vote for Donald Trump song in Spanish was kind of a fire beat. Like I'm not gonna lie. I never, I've never heard that. You'll have to send me a link. Oh yeah, it's, maybe we'll play it at the end. <laughs> it's, it was fire, like it was fire. Oh man. Well, I wonder. Let's let, let me just ask though. Like, if you had to pick a song for Biden, <laughs> what would it be? Um, what's his theme song? I I honestly don't even know. Uh, well, maybe the listeners can contribute there. <laughs> Come up with Biden's theme song. But we're not going to talk politics. We're going to talk about slavery. <laughs> Good lord, this is going to be a tough one. But hey, patron requested it, so we got to get into it. And they expect, you know, they have to, by now, expect that I'm going to go at this with my usual intensity. So, you get what you pay for. (laughs) 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 So, without further ado, shall we begin? Yes, quite. I was sorry, I was just pulling up the, uh, Yo voy a votar por Donald Trump song. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're going to have to put that at the end, unless I come up with something else. But all right, well, let's get let's get started here. When we left Abraham Lincoln, he was getting into corporate law. It was sometime in the 1830s, 1840s, I believe, when we last heard from him. He'd seen some success in his career up to this point. Um, But only now was he acquiring the necessary momentum to eventually produce a famous American presidency. And we're going to get to that probably in part three, because Classic. I, really, I really felt like we needed to get some context for this whole, like, presidency that caused a civil war thing and why that would happen. So we're going to really lay a lot of groundwork on this one. But it's it's good. It's all very, very interesting, and it's, it's related to Lincoln. But I think the idea, what I was going for was I was trying to build, I'm trying to build a picture of the world that he changed so thoroughly with his presidency. And it's important to understand it because if you just think of history like most people think of it, the Civil War and the Amer- and the Lincoln presidency, these are like framed by like movies and, uh, you know, narratives that we, we've seen in pop culture. So, you know, Abraham Lincoln is the, just the sort of 
brooding, necessary hero, and the Civil War was just a bunch of, you know, rednecks fighting, and then there were the Yankees and the blue caps and all that stuff. and <laughs> Rednecks you know, fighting factory workers. Literally. Um, I mean, I guess that's not that far <laughs> off, but... <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so I just I really wanted to go at this with a fresh with a fresh window. Um so here's here's how I'm going to frame it. All right? So the driving force of the entire American story is said to be some kind of a search for freedom. The American tale really did spring up from a series of historical events that are of course all connected, but connected in a way that we in the modern era struggle to understand. That is the idea that one should desire freedom above all else, even life itself. For you see, freedom was worth dying for. That was the American way. It was worth backbreaking work, the great unknown frontier, harsh winters, wars, economic sacrifice, and sanction. Freedom itself is something we as Americans rarely bother to consider. We know no other way of doing things. Want to drive to another state? Go for it. Want to buy a gun? Go for it. Want to base jump into a canyon? Go for it. Freedom of speech, that's what we say. Freedom to do what one wants as long as one doesn't harm others. And that's what America is all about. Do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, unless it impedes taxes, of course. How was that for my for slam poetry? Anyway. <clears throat> that was, that was pretty of... inspirational, though. Honestly, mentioning <laughs> taxes kind of ruined the mood. And probably saying, do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That's vaguely... No, not even vaguely. That's directly satanic. So there you go. <laughs> it actually kind of is. Yeah. It, but, no, yeah. it literally is. That's from. I think it's from Crowley. Actually. You know, Satan um, was probably the first tax collector. Um. Yes. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Almost definitely. So we think of freedom as a set of privileges granted to us by the state. As though for years, Daddy said we couldn't go into the office, but now we're eighteen and we can. Our politicians talk about American freedom as if it's something that could be snatched away at any moment by outside or internal forces and that they, oh, thank God, are the only thing standing between America and totalitarianism. This is what the politicians tell us. <laughs> Here in the States, we talk about freedom as if it was a small thing, as if taken for granted. We put it on bumper stickers, t-shirts at 7-Eleven, and other popularly American displays. Freedom to eat 10 cheeseburgers today, drive a Hummer, watch R-rated movies, and to stay out after midnight. Freedom to do what we want to do when we want to do it. That is the American way. But if I were to ask you to die for these privileges, would you? Would you die for 10 cheeseburgers, R-rated movies, and late nights at the club? I'm guessing no. <laughs> yes, we have even turned freedom itself into a meme in America, and some would say no one would die for freedom today, but the Americans of old fought entire wars over stamps and minor taxes. We could be accused of being too comfortable, not understanding the value of freedom, and that's probably true, because none of us, not many of us, have really had to put our necks on the on the old chopping block in exchange for it, you know? This is true. And I would just sort of add to that, that like in political science, the a lot of what you just said summed up in the ideas of negative versus positive freedom, or rather negative versus positive conceptions of what freedom is, as freedom, is it a ability to do things? That is sort of given to you or is that's the positive conception of freedom that freedom gives you the right to do things or is freedom a negative thing freedom is the lack of constraints on you from doing the things you want to do right right nice addition and i think that's pretty much true 
And, uh, you know, you know what? Real quick, just a little, little aside here. We are going to get into some really, really difficult topics today, and I'd appreciate it if y'all would give me a little bit of a, I don't know, a little rope to work with here, because this is going to get, is going to get tough, and, uh, we're going to talk through some difficult things. And I think y'all can handle it. This, this podcast isn't for everybody. Um, it's for a particularly tolerant kind of person. So, um, without further ado, we shall continue this discussion of freedom, which ironically is a little uncomfortable these days. So if we look at history as a whole, there is one glaring problem with almost all of it. One thing that sort of comes in the box that's part of the whole picture of the entire human story. Every culture has engaged in it. Every time period has had some form of it. Every single group of human beings on the planet have done it. And you know what it is. Agriculture. <laughs> Servility. I, I bet you thought I was going to, thought you were going to, because we're talking about Lincoln, I bet you thought I was going to say slavery. <laughs> and that's true too. Slavery is indeed one form of servility. But humans have always tended to organize themselves into service members and those who receive their services. Sometimes that's done by force and sometimes it is done voluntarily. I have a job where I provide a service in exchange for compensation and I consider it a fair deal most days, even though my back sometimes disagrees. <laughs> But let's talk about servility. Whom does one serve? Why does one serve? Must one serve? Well, in order for anything to get done, people need servants. It has always been this way. And sometimes the deals are plainly and obviously bad. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. But let's paint a little picture. How about this? Say you're an African tribesman living off the land, minding your own business. Things are great. Family life rocks. You just killed a lion with your bare hands the other day. Got a swag new lion pelt hat to wear? Awesome. This is human existence, this is life, and this was the life for many disconnected tribes in Africa, at least in the early days. And if you extend this to Europe or Asia, people just start off in small numbers, small towns connected by footpaths and trails, perhaps even a common religion. People go on as usual, they hunt, they fish, they <laughs> do agriculture, as George would say. I knew it. They they do what they need to do to survive, because the primary enemy is nature. You need to stay warm, stay fed, stay hydrated. You need to propagate your people so you have marriages and children, and the village raises them. This is human civilization. We don't really think like that these days, because we've got these things taken care of. You might say uh, the word decadence might be applicable to the modern era. <laughs> what say you, George? <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose it, it de depends on what one defines as sort of the... Uh the end and highest form because what decadence literally means is a falling down from a peak mm -hmm. so to be decadent you have to have already reached what was the pinnacle of human civilization which very well may have been wearing a lion pelt hat right right it all depends on your perspective you know that's like the ultimate freedom really is being able to murder a lion with your bare hands and wear its head on your head <laughs> um but, you know, it's also not freedom from the forces of nature and that sort of thing. And so the contract that people essentially have been born into with their society is that it help, it's supposed to, anyway, help protect them from the elements and um, give them a place to live so they can focus on other things other than not dying, right? So we've painted this little picture of a simple little village life, you know, disconnected tribes, etc., and then one day, a rough-looking gentleman with a spear comes to your village and says he needs volunteers for a war. And that you can get a Dodge Charger and free college. Exactly. 
And of course, back then, and even today, young men get excited about adventure, right? And so many, even though their parents are filled with grief, they go with the warlord. A couple years go by, warlord returns, some of the boys who went are still alive, perhaps scarred, looking older. Some have not returned, uh, a cost, the warlord tells you, of keeping your village safe. The warlord says he's been very busy protecting your lands from invaders, and perhaps you'd heard rumors that there was some raiding going on in other villages near you. Near your own. Um, the trouble is the raids are coming back, and the warlord needs more troops. So he recruits again, taking even younger men. Um, I'm literally just describing Mountain Blade right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's you. You're recruiting the young men to go die in your dumb war. <laughs> hey, man, we've got to keep Swadia safe from the Vagirs. It's true. <laughs> so, in our little story, a longer period goes by. The Warlord's men sometimes pass through the village and demand supplies for the next campaign, perhaps new recruits, too. Eventually, a network of these villages begins to form, creating something like a primitive form of a state. And the Warlord and his men keep persuading the sons of your village to engage in the army. But eventually, as these things go, the conflict becomes too costly. The enemy is unfortunately ruthless, you hear. There are rumors going around now that the enemy is raising entire villages to the ground, enslaving or murdering entire populations. This flourishing new state is at risk, but your warlord isn't ready to give up ground to these raiders. He demands new recruits, and if they are not given, they will be drafted or taken by force. There is grumbling, of course. Too much grumbling is seen as disloyalty, which is punishable by forced service in the army. Even this isn't enough. Boys and girls start disappearing in the middle of the night. One or two here eventually becomes entire raiding parties. Soon, whole villages are disappearing, and it seems like the warlord isn't doing anything but getting richer and more terrible. And the people just keep disappearing. Little known to you, in your little village, half the people your warlord is taking are being sold like cattle. He profits, and your brother or your sister, mother, father, child, etc. will be shipped off to some foreign part of the world, the world, where their only connection to what they knew before is labor. This was a reality in Europe, Asia, and Africa for thousands of years, to the point where it was just understood that some people were going to enslave the other. It was kill or be killed, enslave or be enslaved. I don't know if you have a perspective on worldwide slavery that you would like to offer, or I can just keep going. Uh, not really, because as a, as a thoroughgoing historicist, I'm, I'm very skeptical of worldwide paradigms for any phenomenon. Yeah, but I'm not saying, like, it's all connected. It's just, there's slavery, right? People enslave each other. Vikings did it, right? True, but I would say each each culture has different motivations, mechanisms, and reasons for engaging in slavery. Exactly, yeah. It's not, it doesn't all look the same, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't all look the it same. All, it's not it, always the same reasons. The circumstances are different. Right. <clears throat> Conditions are certainly different. Oh, yes. Like oh, being yes. a, you know... <clears throat> Being a slave in the Roman Empire could be an exceptionally good deal. There were t some of the some of the richest people in ancient Rome were former slaves who'd worked their way up to just having fantastic wealth. Eventually, um, on the other hand, being a slave, say uh, rowing a galley, very low life expectancy, and uh, pretty much no uh, no potential for any kind of improvement in your station. Right. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, Roman slavery because I actually do get into a teeny tiny bit of that as well as ancient Greece. Um, slavery is, it's, it's a big word and it means a lot of different things, different times and different places. But what we're talking about right now is the uh, almost industrialization of it. <clears throat> like most things, what began as brutal forced slavery 
or servility, I'm sorry, uh, transformed as if to soften the edges and make servility more enticing. It became systematized, organized, and fully accounted for. Levels of servility historically ranged from jolly cooperation, where all participants are in full agreement about what must be done to better the whole, to absolute slavery, where some small group of participants benefits and the rest live in horrifying conditions. The servility product line has had many names and categories throughout history. Slavery, indentured servitude, debt settlement, peasantry, serfdom, you get the point. There are obviously distinctions between all of these, chiefly in the amount of force being leveled against its participants, willing or unwilling. There is also the added element of being a conquered people. A serf in medieval England was not a displaced member of a conquered tribe. That is one of the chief elements that sets slavery apart in most cases. Typically, one doesn't enslave one's own people when there are other conquered nations to pull from. And this is where I wanted to put in a note that lots of slaves became like, they like taught their owner's children. They engaged in other parts of society. And like you said, it could be a pretty good deal in a place like Rome. Um, but it was understood that there were roles, right? It was mm -hmm. like, I mean, maybe you'd like to go into that a tiny bit about uh, slave culture in Rome, if you'd be interested. Yeah, so in, in Rome, you had um, different, very, very different roles slaves could play. So like um, what you actually referenced there in the not script, uh, a slave that is educated and teaches the owner's children. Yeah, that's uh, there's actually a, a word specifically for that, a pedagogus, a teacher of kids. And yeah, they, he was like, you know, he lived very, very nice life you know as a a close associate of a wealthy family he had it very very good on the other hand if you were say a agricultural slave who just worked out on the estate of a roman senator you didn't really have any uh you didn't sort of have a much of a personal connection to the family and so it's unlikely you would be uh you know in a position to um have have your own sort of successful career you were just and it's the same thing in greece in ancient greece most slaves um Whereas most slavery was on an incredibly small scale, like your average Greek slavery looked like a small landowner farmer might have had one or two slaves and he worked on the farm and they worked on the farm with him. They were just sort of his his assistants like he's doing the same stuff they were. That's what most slavery looks like in ancient Greece is uh, a small landowner who has, you know, one or two slaves who are doing the same work he's doing. Um, on the other hand, you have things like uh, the one the really, really bad in terms of conditions slavery in ancient Greece is if you were a slave in the silver mines because ah, you're just yes. crawling through tunnels all day and you have an incredibly low life expectancy. So yeah, this is, yeah, it's not at all one size fits all. Like there are forms, you know, there, there are positions you can be in while being in a slave that are extremely comfortable and extremely sort of open to advancement. Um, like, like Rome, you had some incredibly wealthy ex-slaves in ancient Greece who eventually, um, bought their own freedom with money they'd earned from jobs they did and ended up being extremely successful businessmen. Those weren't ones who were like, you know, crawling around in the tunnels of a silver mine. Right. <clears throat> right. Now, I think the reason I'm, I'm having us go through this is because I don't want to get like hung up on <clears throat> one form of this because it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of different forms historically. Um, there's some there's some really good reading on this topic um, out there, and I, I was perusing some of it, uh, and it seems like uh, the entire historical paradigm isn't, like you said, just one thing. There's a lot of different forms of it, and maybe I should ask, is slavery always technically owning a person? 
Like these assistants on these farms, were they technically owned by the farmer? Is that how that worked? I mean, that's a... Eh. <laughs> Not really? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of... Um... Yeah, I guess it's more than anything. It's a question of terminology that I'm, I'd have to, I'd have to look into exactly what the terminology of of slavery is because they're not, generally speaking, they're not fully uh, chattels in terms of the way they can be moved around and transferred and whatnot. They they have certain certain individual rights. Um, mm -hmm. I'd I'd have to look into it to be to be perfectly honest. Well, and then, well, th I think that's, uh, th obviously this is dicey territory, but, you know, there's the Bible verse, slaves obey your masters, right? Mm -hmm. And to us in the modern era, we're like, oh, how dare they? You know, slaves should be free and should, it's like back then the paradigm was different. It was, it was like, you're supposed to cooperate with the people who are giving you direction, right? Yeah, it's it's and, funny. People get up in arms about something like slaves obey your masters, but they won't get up in arms about something like citizens pay your taxes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but to bring this all back in, we are talking about America. So we're really going to have to talk about the two worlds chiefly involved in this particular form of the disease, specifically Africa and Western Europe. That will help us narrow the window. But let's narrow it a little bit more. How, how about that? The tiny little porthole. Not a big, grand French veranda. But we are going to talk about the French, so here we go. Oh. Uh, we're going to... Are baguettes involved? Uh, anyway. So we're going to talk about one French colony uh, in the Caribbean known as, and tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, Saint-Domingue? Saint-Domingue? I mean, that looks right to me since half the letters aren't pronounced, so... Yeah, so it looks like Saint-Domingue. Domingue. I actually did know how to pronounce this, but uh, I didn't put it in the not script, so we're just going to do it wrong. Um, that is our usual modus operandi, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> we looked so up how to do this, but we're not going to do it right. Maybe I'll just call it Domino's. No, that's not fair. Saint-Domingue. Um, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about two nations, France and the United States. Saint-Domingue, first occupied by native Caribbeans was officially claimed by Spain in the late 1400s. It had the unfortunate problem of being the passageway for many traders and pirates, meaning that the natives that lived there went from centuries of fishing and hunting and generally having a great time, to suddenly they started seeing a lot of Europeans in big boats shooting cannons at each other and then washing up on their shores. So it's like thousands of years of just crushing in the woods with your buddies and then suddenly there's like these white people washing up on the shore and you're like who the hell is this uh as a result of this Saint-Domingue got occupied by French buccaneers who established the island of Tortuga as a popular stopping in point for other pirates and this of course is uh featured prominently in Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> ah yes we gotta have our product placement <laughs> and what were all of these Europeans doing here? Well, <laughs> this part of the world was really rich with natural resources and, my God, a built-in labor force known as native tribes, but also French peasants and buccaneers and other people who just happened to find themselves trapped in this, this, uh, this trade machine that was getting fired up. To make a long story short, the Spanish and the French fought each other over who would get control of this treasure trove of untapped resources. 
Eventually the French won one half, the Spanish the other. It's a long story, but, and we're already a ways in here. So the point is, like so many places on this planet, it got turned into a resource farm. Because of its geographic location, things that couldn't easily be gr grown in Europe just blew out of the ground. On top of that, there were other things that just weren't in Europe, like cash crops, like tobacco, coffee, and uh, cacao? Cocaine. <laughs> um, no, not cocaine, but the stuff that makes chocolate. <laughs> All of these became major exports that you can steal from ships in Assassin's Creed Black Flag, the popular international trade simulator. <laughs> Yes, business was booming, and with so much stuff being extracted from the land, labor grew short. There simply were not enough human beings in this area to get all this stuff harvested, packed, and shipped. There was an easy fix to labor shortages, though. Import more human beings, right? <laughs> kind of what you have to do. This is called colonization, and um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, that's what it is, so... Due to the bountiful nature of the Americas, the race to become the best established, most profitable, richest nation in the Western world took to a whole new level. Wars could be funded. New expeditions to further lands could be launched. The conquest of new lands could be bankrolled. New cities planted. New hordes of wealth accumulated. Endless fun! It was like the nuclear arms race, but for coffee and rum and cold hard cash. <laughs> am, I, am I accurate with this so far? I, got I, I think we're tracking... Um... Okay, I got a bit lyrical with this. <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, uh, are we actually talking about Lincoln at all this episode? Yes, we are. We are. Okay. This okay. is very much. This is very much related. I'm giving an international picture of Lincoln. So there were readily available sources of labor already in the pipeline. At this time, there were slaves in all nations available for sale, but the cheapest, most available, and least educated came from Africa. And the least educated part is key. They won't ask many questions or get ornery. At least not initially. So it was done, and Saint-Domingue became a slave colony. For every one European coming to the island, there were ten Africans there with them. By the 1800s, this so-called Pearl of the Antilles... Is it Antilles or Antilles? I don't know. Um, but this Pearl was one of the wealthiest colonies in the French Empire. It accounted for what was estimated by some scholars to be a third of the entire Atlantic trade. Um, and that includes slaves, but also the crops and that sort of thing that were being exported. Now, things went on like this for a while, but again, in the interest of getting back to Lincoln eventually, we'll summarize a little bit more. Turns out it's a bad idea to bring that many people to slave away for you in a tropical environment and never give anyone a break for lunch. <laughs> might not be the, the best long-term plan. I mean, might work for a while. And of course, there were um, vast cultural differences between the French running the show and the Africans running the machine. But we're not talking about differences like preferring a pizza roll to a Hot Pocket. We're talking about entire worlds colliding. Um, an African tribal who does not speak French, does not look French, doesn't know a thing about French culture, is completely unaware of Europe altogether, who may knows maybe 10 square miles of his home in Africa and has met less than 100 people in his entire life, has been forcefully extracted from his native environment and just dropped into this life of slavery. Not only is this person going to be thoroughly confused about what the heck is going on, they're going to carry with them all of their mannerisms and characteristics that would appear foreign to the French natives. So what do you do when you go to a foreign country and you can't speak the language? You mime, you use broken phrases, you picked up somewhere and generally change your behavior to try and communicate cross-culturally. You've done a lot of traveling, you know what this is like. True, true. Yeah. I, I am no, I am known, known to do a bit of the old miming myself. Yeah. You just can't communicate with people on 
any real level if you don't have the language, but let alone the language, if you don't have the cultural background, you know, you might say something super insulting without actually meaning to. I, mean, I think the Dutch are famous for having very strange phrases that they use that when they translate to English, they just don't make any sense. Um, so without, without this ability to communicate with language, you emote more, act out more, try to express yourself in a universal language. You're hungry, so you hold your stomach and go, ugh. You're thirsty, so you point to your mouth and stick out your tongue. Behaviors that make you look like an animal, because that's kind of what you've been reduced to without the means by which to communicate anything. And forgive me, I am going to be talking about communication, because that is me. It is me, it is I. What do you expect? <laughs> and so, if you're acting like an animal, the Europeans running this operation will begin to treat you like an animal. And as you might, ima might imagine, with so many work units to manage, the more that showed up, the more disposable they became. And when they showed up, they had to basically retrain them everything all over again. Um, and so you just kind of like point them in a direction and hope they can work for a while before they die. You know, a worker with a broken leg is a liability, so you just let them die and replace them. And because there's just, you know, there's a hundred more of them getting off the boat right now, right? So this is why the abuses got to be kind of ridiculous. Um, and eventually you can get into some really dark territory. Um, talking about, like, forced eugenic breeding programs to produce stronger workers right there in the island, sort of bred in captivity, the murder or negligence of overworked or dying slaves, and much worse, it was really bad, and we're not really going to get into it because it's really not good. It's a tropical environment, use your imagination. <sighs> so it could get only this bad because many of these Africans just didn't have any time to figure out what was happening to them or that it was even unjust. And when they began to hear this phrase, liberté, égalité, fraternité, some things started to click, because this was a motto spreading in France, which was, at this time, in the midst of the actual French Revolution, at the time of this story. Um, it was in the midst of the French Revolution. Everybody was talking about freedom and equality and brotherhood, and they just, it, it was in the cultural milieu, and it was kind of everywhere. Um, it's part of what, a, you know, French Revolution is part of what was, I mean, it was absolutely related to the American Revolution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, people were thinking differently. They were expecting more. Um, so it seemed that such ideas would naturally spread to the colonies as well, which, of course, you know, they did in America. It definitely took the enslaved Africans' cultural consciousness a minute to catch up, but when it did, it really, really did. Um, like a spark in a bird's nest, when the slaves figured out what was going on, realized the depths of the crimes committed against them, and understood full well that they outnumbered their captors, the whole thing blew up pretty quickly. It began with murmurings of revolt, and continued at light speed into full-scale revolution. The initial shock of this caused the French government to pass some laws to give certain rights to slaves. Um, they were like, oh no, oh dear God, like they're going to kill everybody on this island if we don't stop this. How about we send them a piece of paper that says they can vote now? And they're like, okay, so they send it in, but nothing else changes. They just, you know, they can vote, that sort of thing. They're citizens, they're French now, you know, yay, right? And this calmed things down for a while, but when it became obvious that nothing had really changed all that much and things were still bad and egalité was not achieved, things again escalated very quickly. So the Haitian Revolution happened and almost all the French elites in the island of Saint-Domingue were genocided in 1803. About 25,000 of the poorer white French migrated to Louisiana to escape what ended up being years of racial revenge being carried out on them, and Haiti got its freedom. 
Was it brutal? Of course it was. It's most one of the most brutal stories I've ever read. The whole situation was garbage. And it was all for money so European nations could continue to try to strangle each other for enough, another couple of centuries. Uh, if you're looking at this from the bird's eye view. Now, if you want to get an idea of how people, how far people will go for freedom when they really, really want it, uh, go give the Haitian Revolution story a read. It deserves its own podcast. Needless to say, when the blood started running, it didn't stop in Haiti for a very, very long time. It was absolutely brutal, and it was, I mean, I say almost completely, but I'm pretty sure it was completely racial. Because how could it not be? The people with the light skin at abusing those with the dark, simple as. Even if you had been an abolitionist or had been working on behalf of the slaves, at a certain point, if you were European and on that island, you were probably going to get shanked, and that was if you were lucky. I mean, we're talking like, I didn't even want to put put it much of it in there, because it is, I mean, it is brutal. Have you ever read about this? Oh, yes. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I, I can't even begin. I mean, do, do you have any factoids you'd want to share, or? Um, I would, I would share that one of the, one of the few exceptions to this were the Polish. Hmm. They didn't get genocided. Why? Well, because, and there's, there's a word I can't say in here, uh, various Haitian revolutionary leaders dead, dead, officially declared the Polish as white N words. Really? <laughs> yes. Why? <laughs> Uh, be, a, what the hell? Because even 200 years ago, the um, impression most people had of the Poles was those people who are between a bunch of big powers in Eastern Europe and are always getting stepped on by their neighbors. Wow. Uh, that's a raw deal. <laughs> yeah. And so because because of, yeah, their reputation is always being oppressed by their neighbors. Um, yes, they were uh, they were pretty much um, exempt from all of this. That is yeah, there was there was a Polish community on Haiti, and um, yeah, they were pretty much uh, pretty much off scot free. Yeah, that is very interesting. I'm glad you shared that. Um, it adds a little more color to this. So there's all these stories about um, gangs of ex-slaves, uh, you know, doing military training, marching on villages, murdering, and you know, other things. Um, to people who, you know, there's there's woodcuts and drawings of, um, you know, Haitians holding the heads of French noblemen on mountainsides and things like that. I mean, it was not, it wasn't pretty. I mean, just one of the ugliest periods of history. Um, and these stories are shocking, right? And they're getting back to France. They're going back to Spain. People are, like I said, those 25,000 uh, French... Um, People escaped to uh, the south. Uh, they went to places like Louisiana, which is why it's Frankified down there. Um, <laughs> this And they brought those stories with them, right? This brutality could not be ignored, especially in the United States, especially in the south, where there was a significant slave population from the same stock as the Haitians. If the word got around that such a thing could be done, that slaves could actually fight and win back their freedom... And, you know, take a couple pounds of extra flesh just for good measure on top of it, things could get very, very unstable very, very quickly down there. In fact, they did. There were lots of slave revolts in the South that had to be put down. And then there's the North. <laughs> there was a Protestant groove in the Northern states, a stock of people that came from Puritanism that only wanted to serve God and not a king or a pope or anything like that. On the surface, anyway. 
They easily found themselves aligning with abolition because they valued freedom too and had fought their own war against the British to get it. The abol and I'm simplifying this a little bit, but you know, you get what I'm mm -hmm. you get what I'm driving at. The abolitionist movement naturally found itself finding more support in the north partially because of this and partially because the northerners were generally not as acquainted with native Africans who have been exported from their homeland. And the ones that they did know were often much more Americanized. Uh, blacks in the South were more likely to be fresh arrivals or Frankified. So foreign in nature. Um, so the Northerners have no like concept of this situation down there. Um, it's, it's really very interesting. It's part of why there was such division leading up to the Civil War. Which is to say that the Northerners didn't actually understand the circumstances the South was facing. In the South, if abolition happened, it would not only, I mean, it would instantly destroy the economy, so there's that. Um, there would be essentially detached people everywhere with not really sure what to do in a strange land. It wouldn't really be good for anyone living down there, um, especially since there was the constant threat of France or Spain deciding they wanted a little more land in the United States again and maybe attacking while they were restructuring after, you know, forced abolition. This whole thing was like a European game of chicken. Uh, who would give up slavery first? Because whoever did was at an immediate economic disadvantage. And because of the situation in Europe, this whole rise of, you know, age of exploration and colonization and that sort of thing, you know, the European powers were constantly at war with each other. Um, and, you know, it's important to... It's just important to remember that the, there's conquest going on in Europe at this time. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. So the whole thing pretty much leaned on money and zero-sum economics. It's brutal. That's how it was. Secondly, the South was much more Catholic than the North, more traditional. There was a sense of service to a higher earthly power, namely Rome, and that all people had their stations and were born to fill them, slaves included. It was just, it was, uh, this is all a vast oversimplification, but you can see where this might lead, can't you? I mean, you well, know the situation. I'm just, just going to take historical points that I, I would I would take issue with the, the South being much more Catholic than the North. Um, I think the North probably actually had more Catholics. Okay. Um, But neither, that's the thing, is both the North and the South were pretty fundamentally anti-Catholic in their social policies. Mm -hmm. Um, You had different Catholic influences. So the North had more Irish immigrants, though both the South and the North had Irish immigrants, who were, of course, Catholic. In the South, you did have some Catholic remnants from the French. Um, you know, if you go into the far South, Louisiana and whatnot, you still have some sort of Catholic social influence there. But both of them were fairly, on the whole, relatively anti-Catholic, just in different ways. Because Puritans, viciously anti-Catholic. Um, Baptists, generally, viciously anti-Catholic. And um, Anglicans, of course, even though on the surface, they look more like Catholics than everyone else. And there are a lot of Anglicans in the, uh, the old South. Um, they very, very anti-Roman. So, I mean, there's not yeah. a whole lot of Catholic influence in either the South or the North at this point. Well, in the that South case, is probably, I would, I would say that the, what your ultimate point was is true is that the South has a lot more old Anglicanism, like very old, yeah. you know, sort of hereditary landowner, sort of almost pseudo nobility. But they're Anglican. Yeah. I knew you were going to correct me on this, um, <laughs> but which is good. I was actually wondering also, I forgot to put this in the not script, but could you maybe offer a short perspective on what the Old South might have been like? 
culturally? I mean, that's the thing is that it's it's very it's not at all homogenous. So you have like, I guess I'll take as sort of the the example, the uh, we'll just sort of say Virginia culture, Virginia okay. and it's which, of course, um, was bigger. West Virginia hadn't happened yet. But um, mm-hmm. in Virginia, you have a sort of continuation of Anglo agrarianism. So you have these estates, you have what essentially equal a nobility, these old landed families who've been there since the mid 1600s, um, that essentially have their own little, little dynasties. They've been passing down the same massive agricultural estates for, you know, hundreds of years at that point, you have a very, very sort of elevated cultural level there with these old families who really are essentially nobility. Um, other places you have, uh, a lot of, sort of poor subsistence farmers, just like you had in areas of the North. It all, it all depends on where in the South you are. So like, and if you look, you had a lot less support for slavery in areas where the general population was poorer. So in like the mountain areas of the South, you didn't actually have very much support for slavery because most of the people were small time subsistence farming landowners. Right. Um, yeah, and then you then you have the the French thing down in you know if you go to Louisiana and Florida, you have this completely different non-Anglo culture there. You have um, basically a continuation of you know Bonaparte's France. That's why to this day Louisiana doesn't have counties; it has parishes because that's how um, in their Napoleonic law that's how things were divided up. In English law, things are divided into counties, and Napoleonic law they're divided into parishes. Um, so yeah, the South is not at all homogenous. That's the big, the big takeaway. You have areas that are really just sort of carrying on, um, old school Anglo, the no, the old school Anglo noble system. You have areas of these sort of poor subsistence farmers who just mostly want to be left alone. You have this area, which is still to a great extent French, um, and then, of course, since America has so many immigrants, that adds a whole different thing to it because you have these different immigrant groups. Um, just like fun fact, most of the Slavs who fought in the Civil War were on the Confederate side because by whatever, I'm not sure why this is, I never looked into it, but by whatever concatenation of history, most boats that came from uh, from the Adriatic Sea to America landed in New Orleans. And so most of the Slavs in America were in the South, in Louisiana and Florida for some reason. And so you actually had a couple of, uh, you had a couple of Serbian military units in the Civil War on the Confederate side. Very interesting. So yeah, you just have all these different, different groups that are not at all sort of the same culturally and don't at all necessarily have the same values or goals. Yeah, and if you had... If you had to offer a you know a short perspective on the North, I mean, was it was it necessarily more industrially, like you said earlier, factory workers, um, and et cetera? I think north. the the North probably was yeah. So you have a different a different you have the factory class, which is much much smaller in the South. Um, I think you have more of what you would call, I mean, it's anachronistic to say, but I think you would have a slightly larger middle-class portion in the North. You would have more farmers who were above that lowest level, but not at all rich. I think, I think on the whole, you had a, a more like slightly prosperous farmer class. Um, and that part of that too, there's just like, there's some fantastic farmland opening up in, you know, Ohio, 
Indiana, Pennsylvania, fantastic farmland um, that's not a lot of mountains and whatnot. And you had, because you had more industrialism in the north, you had better railroads, you had better logistics for transporting stuff. So on the whole, I think you had a slightly larger sort of, uh, yeah, middle class, even though it's not really a middle class because that's anachronistic. But you had more like slightly successful farmers who are a little bit prosperous. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good. Not to say you didn't have those people in the south, but I think because of the better logistical support in the north with roads and railroads and all that coming in, I think you had more of that in the north. Oh sure, and to this day, you know, if you look at a, if you look at a um, map of the highways, um, there, <laughs> as you get further south and southwest, they start to sort of spread out a little bit more. It's like a mm -hmm. spider web. Um, so yeah, that's that's good perspective to have. Um. So, you know, as you can see, this situation is complicated and there's already conflict building. So, Abraham Lincoln, the man of the hour, like everybody else, was watching all of this going on from the north. Um, I guess not everybody else was from the north, but I mean, the northerners. He was just one of the northerners watching this southern problem start to escalate. And where he is, Protestant ministers are starting to, starting to like speak really loudly and frequently on abolition and freedom wholesale. A moral and religious fervor was beginning to rise. Slaves escaping to the north were initially returned to their masters in southern states, and there were all these state laws about what you could do with an escaped slave up there. Um, it, it was also kind of hairy. Um, and these stories of escaped slaves talking about brutality and that sort of thing when they came north, like this was starting to spread and the sensibilities of the, you know, the, I don't know if you want to call it the, um, well, we'll just call it like vaguely Protestant, um, culture up there was starting to sort of like turn a turn an ear toward the toward the horrors of the South. Um, and as the situation, of course, grew more complicated, with the United States itself becoming interested in some of the fancy stuff that was on offer from the Caribbean, constant debate and clamor about what to do in all this confusion became normalized. There was a very very dark cloud on the horizon. But thankfully, the string bean stranger, Abraham Lincoln, was on the scene to clarify the situation and fix it all. So let's get back to his story, shall we, now that we're an hour in? <laughs> I, I uh, think I think that would be that would be excellent. Oh, oh, yes. can I just tell a fun story real quick? Of course. Before? So talking, go back to what I was saying about uh, anti-Catholicism um, in both the South and the North. In the 1840s, there were massive anti-Catholic riots all over the North. Um and uh, they were burning down churches and murdering people in monasteries and whatnot. And the Archbishop of New York, uh, whose name was John Hughes, um, is often referred to as Dagger John. Um, oh, he, he told the mayor of New York that if one more Catholic church was burned, that he would have the Irish burn down every public building in the city of New York. <laughs> and guess what? No more Catholic churches were burned. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Dagger John. John Hughes, also known for directing 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a man of many talents. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> he's a, but I just, he's I a political that. activist, an aspiring filmmaker in 1840. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that story, though. Uh, that's a good story. I'm glad we can laugh about it now as a Protestant and a Catholic together. We're just really reaching across the aisles and shaking hands, you know? Yeah. But I still hate you, papist scum, so. <laughs> uh, naturally, it's to be expected. 
So Lincoln at this time was politicking and trying to get better and better offices as politicians do. He also became notorious for being a bit of an unusual thinker. He got himself the nickname Spotty Lincoln through one of these stunts. In fact, he picked up a new nickname almost as frequently as he engaged in this political stuntage. As a frontier lawyer for his day job, Lincoln frequently got a variety of unusual cases. But only one of them really got him his big break. A murder trial involving a question of self-defense. Lincoln won the case, which was enough, big enough deal to put him back on the political radar. So he got some traction from this from this trial. I forgot to write down the name of it, but it's 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 right out there in his uh, biography. So in the 1850s, Lincoln really began to let the, know, let the world know what he thought of slavery. Uh, now, let me be very clear on this. Lincoln's opinions on the slavery problem were fairly complex. This is just the, about the way it was with just about everybody in leadership at the time. The debate went on and on, day in and day out, for years about what was to be done about this because people were getting very morally upset about it and they also didn't know how to stop it because it, it, it's like... A, it's like if you wanted to get, uh, like, I don't, I don't know how, how I could explain this, but getting any, like, a, any group of people to all do the same thing all at once, especially when a lot of them don't want to do it, is really hard. <laughs> there are questions about whether or not states should be able to decide or the entire country should be held to the exact same standard on the slavery question. Whether that was total abolition or a slow withdrawal from the practice, people couldn't decide exactly what slavery was at some points. Lines got very blurred. Um, there were, of course, racial questions. In fact, during the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, where Lincoln um, debated uh, Judge Stephen Douglas um, about, you know, how slavery should be dealt with, Douglas's position was, you know, the complicated, like, oh, let's just let the states decide. Some place can be slave states, some place can be free. And Lincoln's like, no, we got to get rid of all of it. Um, at, a, at one of these debates, Lincoln actually accused Stephen Douglas of fomenting fears about the amalgamation of races in the United States in order to make a case against abolition. Which is to say, in um, more clear language, Lincoln believed that the races should and would stay separate after abolition. Many white people in America didn't believe that would be the case, and saw the institution of slavery as something preventing such an outcome. Of course, by modern standards, this all sounds very strange to us, but back then, people were much more tribal. Even in white colonies, most people still identified as German, British, French, or Polish, you know, before they were identified as, you know, white. <laughs> some, some, some of us still do. Yeah. <laughs> so Lincoln actually mentions this in a speech that I'll read later. Um, the world just wasn't as, it wasn't divided up the same way as it was back then. Um, of course, this would all change as population grew and technology evolved. And it's, of course, worth reminding ourselves that the Civil War came just before the tech boom of the 20th and 21st centuries. Technology is the factor that changed the most about our world in this humble communicator's opinion. For example, war photography was brand new. Uh, up to this point in history, there were almost no photographs of soldiers fighting on battlefields or any destruction of any kind. There was like one yeah, I war feel, I feel that like I was going to say, I feel like we could just make that a full stop of up to this time, there were almost no photographs. <laughs> there were almost no photographs at all. <laughs> but uh, also it was it was seen as obscene to take pictures of battlefields um, largely. And there, it was, there was one um, Eastern European conflict that was photographed before the Civil War, but it wasn't a major like full scale war 
photograph from beginning to end. There were like a couple pictures of some battlefields and some soldiers and things. Um, so yeah, the Civil War would be the first uh, war to be photographed all the way from the beginning to the end. Uh, and of course, photo manipulation soon followed way faster than you'd think. Like, think they invented the camera and some primitive form of Photoshop all at the same time. And the political situation in America was, of course, pretty much disastrous. The Civil War was essentially uh, yeah, inevitable. It's, it's, it's famous how Lincoln won the Lincoln-Douglas debate by making Douglas a soy jack. <laughs> he tried. He definitely tried. Um, well, we're actually going to read a speech from um, one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates here at the end. It's a rather extended quote, but I thought it was necessary. Uh, the Civil War was beginning to seem essentially inevitable, and we all know the meme reasons why that war was fought. But when we grow up and learn a lot more about life, we begin to understand that the official story about virtually anything is a complete oversimplification and a joke. There were thousands of reasons for this Civil War to break out, but let's focus on the one big one that Lincoln chose to underline. And that, of course, is the one that we... The one reason we think the Civil War actually happened when they were, you know thousands of reasons but Lincoln chose one and Lincoln decided to make abolition his brand he was absolutely going to get rid of slavery by hook or by crook he had popular support behind him especially from Protestants and ministers in the north Lincoln's presidential era came on the heels of the second great awakening which was a period in American history where everyone doubled down and decided to become even more super Protestant maxed <laughs> um Preachers were traveling from town to town, setting up tent revivals and all the rest to essentially reunite Americans under one big happy Protestant flag. Um, it, with like a, it's like an updated Christianity now. It's like thoroughly Americanized. Uh, think of like a, an Aaron Copeland soundtrack while I'm reading. This. <laughs> so frequently, these Protestants tied abolition up with their sermons, and word would continue to spread. Popular support for abolition increased as Protestantism experienced its second huge re revival in America. This is where a moral spine for abolition was beginning to grow, and a sense of moral rightness and betterness began to arise amidst the Northerners and other abolitionists. Not that all Northerners were ab abolitionists, but you know what I mean. Uh, to make this as clear as possible, <laughs> like you said, the South was not that homogenous. The North was very much homogenous, largely made up of, you know, Anglos. <laughs> hey, don't, um, don't erase my people. I'm not erasing you. I'm just saying there's a lot of British people up there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, do you want to talk about the racial demographics of the United States at this time? No, I, mean, I, just, I just don't want you erasing the history of my, my people, the Pennsylvania. Uh, oh, well, what's that? To educate the listeners. The German-speaking population that went first to Pennsylvania and then spread from there westward. Um, uh, like fun fact: at the eve of World War One, Pennsylvania was forty percent German-speaking. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was probably some conflict there about what side of the war we should end up on. Huh? Well, they like banned German language, everything. They completely destroyed our culture when America entered oh. World War One. You know, really? They closed the German language newspapers and banned German social clubs and stuff like that. I mean, I I guess I see the reason why, but that's pretty awful. Um, destroying someone's culture for a war. Well, hey, that's kind of what war is, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I can sense it's a sensitive topic, so I won't pretend to know <laughs> everything about it. Um, 
yes, so yes. But, I mean, largely we would say in our modern um, low IQ <laughs> way of doing things in the modern world, you might say that the United States up north was colonized, settled, and built by these uh, white people and the Irish. But as we know... <laughs> <laughs> But as we know. <laughs> wow. Wow, so that's where we're going today, huh? Oh, yeah, I'm just kidding around. But as we know, uh, white people are basically the sheep of the planet. When one starts bleeding and moral outcry, they all eventually start shouting four legs good, two legs bad. This is something that Orwell talked about a lot. Um, specifically, like, Anglos are very, very much like this. Um, and especially once the press or visible leadership makes a fancy speech about one specific issue, that's when people start to get riled up and on the same page about things. And of course, in the South, you had more Spaniards, French, Portuguese, Africans, all kinds of other friends. Not to, of course, mention, um, not to mention the indigenous races that were beginning to grow in population in places that weren't North America. Um, well, it, so you mentioned indigenous. That's another thing is that the North didn't really uh, have Native Americans anymore. They, uh, they, they, they kind of weren't there anymore. Um, yeah. The South why. still did. Like, I believe... Um, if memory serves, a, a higher percentage of Cherokee in the South owned slaves than white people did. Really? The, yeah, the Cherokee were very successful. Um, they had plantations and everything. Wow. Why don't we? In fact, the last, I believe the last Confederate general to surrender was Stan Wadey, who was a Cherokee chief. Really? Mm hmm. There's so much interesting stuff that we don't know about here. I love this. I'm really glad you're kind of a Civil War buff because I'm, of course, working from the context of meme history, right? Like, I didn't... <laughs> it was it was something I learned about. It wasn't something I saw, you know, around where I grew up, right? Midwest, it's... There's not really... There's not, like, a ton of Civil War battlefields in the Midwest. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> the Northerners were crying out uh, for ab the abolition of a system that they only benefited from. Uh, so it's like, think of your <laughs> typical, like, white Zoomer moralizing on Twitter about the behavior of big corporations over their Starbucks and MacBook. Uh, the North wasn't dealing with the same problems the South was. It's, that's just a fact. They didn't have the same, I mean, it's like two different worlds, honestly. Um, and I, I can, I can talk about this because I have experienced both Yankee and Southern culture. Uh, and I can tell you, not much has changed about the Yankee mindset, I would say, uh, except that we're a lot less Christian now. Um, we just pretty much go on as, as programmed and, uh, do our jobs and uh, uh, works work and, and play is play. Burr, 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 burr. We're just little worker drones out here. Um, and we're really good at demonizing people. So much of the South was quickly becoming demonized by Northern Protestants. I almost said Northern podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, still true. It's still also true. true. They were demonizing the South for not being able to solve problems that the Northerners simply did not have. It wasn't as simple as, oh, look at the bad man whipping the poor slave. But it sure was that simple in the heads of many of the, many of the Northern commoners because Lincoln and his branding team did a great job of making it that simple, which is why the North eventually won and the South still feels guilt to this day. It's Lincoln's branding. I am convinced of that. Just looking at his branding department. That's why we started with the song. He had a song. He didn't just have a song. He had lots of songs about how great and honest he was and all the rest. And people were singing these and, you know, it's a, it's a whole thing. So Lincoln's branding department. Let's just talk about branding a tiny bit because this is my area of expertise and uh, any historical things you can critique, of course. 
So Lincoln's branding department built a what's called a presumptive moral paradigm, simplified the message, and capitalized on it. It's not that it hadn't been done before, but he was really good at it, and it was it was genius by any any measure. Um, and it's such an effective technique that it's now done all the time in the modern day. <laughs> so I've got an example. It happens so frequently we don't even notice it anymore. So here's how it works, and I'll read this like an internet ad um, if you'd like. <laughs> let's 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 rile up everybody today. How about that? Now we get a free sample of Aaron's professional work. Yeah. In okay, so here, here, here's here's my here's an ad voice. In 2020, the global community faced a pandemic unlike anything the world had ever seen. In 2022, there are still thousands of people without access to life-saving healthcare. Start the change today at HealthyAmerican.io. <laughs> Is that now, one of those browser games? Yeah. <laughs> now, when I say there are still thousands of people without access to life-saving healthcare. I have buried the moral presumption in the subtext. Whether you like it or not, the moral presumption is that healthcare is always good. And it doesn't matter if you agree with the message or not, you have to ignore that. People on the internet won't see the scam, and will probably leave bad reviews for the podcast because they can't hear what I'm saying. They're caught up in the moral bleeding about healthcare. It's not about healthcare, it's not about the issues, this is about messaging and branding. The moral presumption is the subtext in the message. You have to forget the product, forget the marketing, and focus on that moral presumption. Healthcare good. So, <clears throat> Lincoln and the Protestants in the North, and I keep generalizing as the, but yes, it really was the Protestants. His Protestant cronies in the North did the same thing. They simply started saying things like, it's 1860, and there are still human beings who think slavery is okay. They're called Southerners. Kill them. <laughs> <laughs> so the subtext is that not only is every civilian in the South a slaver, they think it's okay. Of course, this was simply not true. It was an over- um, mischaracterization because there were of course abolitionists in the south because they were dealing with the problem down there um, <laughs> but Lincoln and his branding team did a really good job of making southerners look really really bad and it was so effective <laughs> it still exists today but the south did definitely have people who were capitalizing on slavery I mean absolutely 100% you had slave markets people being unloaded from boats every day people were there to do it there was absolutely abuse and all the racism and all the other stuff that just makes it so horrible. But the point I'm trying to make is that the northerners simply the northerners simply didn't have the same problems, and so they imagined all of these solutions that wouldn't work that they wanted implemented immediately and if necessary by force, and it was always it was getting so radical, religious and moralizing that it would have it was just it wasn't going to work. And they were primed for this by the time, uh, from the time of the Second Great Awakening. Let me put it like this. The northern vision for how to handle the slave states would be like trying to implement some kind of green program in America by getting rid of all of the gas stations in a day. Like, the whole country would just instantly fail. Would it be good to get rid of all the gas stations eventually? Yes, of course, we all want a cleaner environment free of all the dinosaur juice. But how are you going to get those solar panels and nuclear reactors to where they need to go? on horseback <laughs> but of course um gradual emancipation wasn't going to work either because the situation in haiti made that abundantly clear when the french tried it so we have two terrible solutions to a bad problem and there's no answer available and red-pilled mr lincoln knew this <sighs> did you want to say something i heard you unmute <laughs> 
Uh, no, no, no. Just unmuted in case I need to say something. In case you need to stop me. <laughs> in case you need to stop you before you get too worked up. I know, I know. I, I, I did have that Americano. It's hitting the bloodstream. So outrage is growing, and hear me when I say this, rightfully so. But if you go and read the speeches that the people were making about this, the Yankees were making impossible demands. I And to give you some, some idea of how much I read into this, I listened to about a... An entire four hours of a great course's lecture series on this topic to prepare to talk about this. Uh, and the most unbelievable thing you will discover is the rhetoric of the Northerners, Northerners crying out against the South. It's like somebody rage tweeting about how the zookeepers should have simply talked Harambe down instead of blowing him away like they did. It's completely detached from reality in a lot of cases. And you've got politicians out there just like freaking out and you know, giving these speeches and like, ah, we got to get rid of them. And of course, the South is like, well, what are we going to do? Well, we haven't got anything we can do with all of these people. Like, you're crazy. And it's just, it's, it is a situation that, you know, <laughs> almost everyone knew that slavery was going to go. I mean, it was already going away in Europe and all the rest, even in the South. But the question about what to do. Um, was left to the states and not D.C. It wasn't a federal decision, you might say. So you can read thousands of state congressional addresses and speeches, and almost everyone agrees that it's, oh, it's bad, and it's, you know, it's got to go, you know, slowly or quick, but nobody knows what to do. And it was like this for decades. It was really bad. <laughs> so Lincoln cleared away all these confusing narratives, clarified the absolute ever-loving shit out of it, the institution of slavery must go as soon as possible. No more debates. And that's why the Lincoln-Douglas debates eventually ended, and there was no more time for talking. By the end of those debates, Lincoln began to appear as a great savior, the only man with enough vision to end this chaos. And lo and behold, the North had another Jesus. The pre-programming was the Second Great Awakening, where the North was thoroughly trained to look for a savior to, quote, deliver captives and preach good news. You can see this illustrated thoroughly in the 2006 film Amazing Grace, which was about William Wilberforce and his campaign against slavery. Lincoln gathered up all of his narrative, this narrative momentum and portrayed himself as a humble and reluctant savior of all men uh, during all his campaigns, which is exactly what the people were primed to look for in the North. It's why he won up there. But if you really want to bake your noodle, go and watch how Lincoln is portrayed in The Birth of a Nation, a movie where the Ku Klux Klan is portrayed as the good guys. And if you think they portrayed him as some buffoon or evil person in that movie, guess again. They literally put a shining halo around his head with special effects. <laughs> that really surprised me, by the way, when I watched that movie. It's like, aha, the South is great, and also Lincoln is Jesus. <laughs> Very confusing. Do you have any perspective on this? I feel like I'm just I yelling at a wall. I have I haven't watched Birth of a Nation, so I can't I can't really chime in here. Um, oh, so why why does he have a halo? Because post Civil War, there was this movement of like, bro, you know, we were brothers against brothers, and we fought a war. But you know, hey, we're both like proud that we fought bravely, and um, you know, you'd see these pictures of old Civil War veterans, you know, from the North and the South marching together in parades, and you know, the narrative got sort of glued together so to speak like you had the proud south and the proud north the winners and the you know the the noble you know losers of the conflict and that sort of thing very much like 
they they definitely like uh, almost culturally smoothed things over pretty good after the war. This so when this true. movie when this movie came out, it was like the movie for everybody, right? And Americans were like they all went because Lincoln was portrayed as good, and so was the South. Oh yeah, and right? there's a very there's a very good reason that up until quite recently that had been our social consensus is that we were gonna do and that was that was established very intentionally because if you establish that the civil war is about winners and losers what you have is you have half the country permanently in a subject state of being the conquered other and everybody Mm. at the time at the end of the civil war knew that's not good that's a bad thing that's a very unstable position in the long term if we have the whole South of the nation, which traditionally had produced most of the best military officers for the United States is in the position of being this conquered other, it's going to be bad. And so everybody pretty much agreed we're going to, and Congress even, you know, passed a law that Confederate veterans count as you, as us veterans, all that kind of stuff. Everybody agreed. We're going to sort of, come together, decide, you know, we all, we all put in a lot in the civil war. We all worked really hard and now we're all going to move forward together. That was the consensus that both the North and the South came to, because that was what you needed to have a stable future for America. And that's only been unraveled in the last like 10 years. Yes. So rough times, rough topics. Um, but you know, Hey, we're, we're here to learn and have some fun. So yeah, that, that was very much the case. So there's a halo around Lincoln's head (laughs) in uh, Birth of a Nation. Now, I have here, as I promised, this extended quote from Abraham Lincoln in his final speech at the Alton debate, which was the last debate between Lincoln and and Judge Douglas about the institution of slavery. And I'm going to read this massive thing because it will give a clearer picture of what I'm trying to say, and it will let Lincoln show you who he is in his own words. Um, Lincoln was beginning to brand himself as the moral vote right? Would you say that's a fair, a fair, yeah, a fair say? I, I yeah. think so. So he was taking the, the so-called higher ground, um, portraying himself as almost a religious figure. And that stuck to today. Um, so, uh, so here goes, uh, should I read it in an old timey Lincoln voice? <laughs> yeah. I want to, I want to hear your Lincoln impression. Oh man. It's so long though. <laughs> All Maybe right. Read I'll just do... part of it in your Lincoln impression. Uh, I'll read part. I'll read part of it in Lincoln. It's like the beginning of Valkyrie where Tom Cruise is speaking German and it fades into English. That sounds like a terrible editorial decision. I'll have to look that up. (laughs) Yeah, it's the first scene. Um, So here we go. I'll start in Lincoln and then I'll transition into myself. Okay, okay. Quote. Where would you have found your free state or territory to go? Uh, No, that wasn't right. Where would you have found your free... I'm just going to read it straight. All right. This is a disappointment. This is a disaster. (laughs) This is a transcript. Um, So there's like things like loud cheers and continued cheering. Do you want me to... I'll do the things in the parentheses if you want. Yes, you you do that. (laughs) You do that. All right. Where would you have found your free state or territory to go to? And when, hereafter, for any cause, the people in this place shall desire to find new homes if they wish to be rid of the institution, meaning slavery... Where will they find a place to go? (laughs) Nice. I am still in favor of our new territories being in such a condition that white men may find a home, may find some spot where they can better their condition, 
where they can settle upon new soil and better their condition in life. Ooh, yeah! <laughs> Lincoln! <laughs> I am in favor of this, not merely, I must say it as I have elsewhere, for our own people who are amongst us, but as an outlet for free white people everywhere, the world over in, which Hans, in Baptiste, and Patrick, and all the other men from all the world, may find new homes and better their conditions in life. <laughs> so what he's saying is like being Hans Baptiste and Patrick. He's talking about Germans, uh, the French, and the Irish. Who called Patrick, which is hilarious. So um, on the point of my wanting to make war between the free and the slave states, there has been no issue between myself and Judge Douglas. So, too, when he assumes that I am in favor of introducing a perfect social and political equality between the, wat, uh, the white and black races. The wat. These are the wat. The wat race. <laughs> These are false issues upon which Judge Douglas has tried to force the controversy. There is no foundation in truth for the charge that I maintain either of these propositions. The real issue... Um, in this controversy, the one pressing upon every mind is the sentiment on the part of one class that looks upon the institution of slavery as a wrong and of another class that does not look upon it as a wrong. The sentiment that contemplates the institution of slavery in this country as a wrong is the sentiment of the Republican Party. It is the sentiment around which all their actions, all their arguments circle, from which all their propositions radiate. They look upon it as being a moral, social, and political wrong. And while they contemplate it as such, they nevertheless have due regard for its actual existence among us, and the difficulties of getting rid of it in any satisfactory way and to all the constitutional obligations thrown about it. I have said, and I repeat it here, that if there be a man amongst us who does not think that the institution of slavery is wrong in any one of these aspects of which I have spoken, he is misplaced and ought not to be with us. And if there be a man amongst us who is so impatient of it, as a wrong is to disregard its actual presence among us and the difficulty of getting rid of it suddenly in a satisfactory way and to disregard the constitutional obligations thrown about it, that man is misplaced if he is on our platform. We disclaim sympathy with him in practical action. He is not placed properly with us. So what he's saying there is that people who don't think of it as wrong, they're not Republicans like us, but also... If there's a guy who doesn't think that there's... Oh, hang on, let me make sure I interpreted this right. Um, well, He's kind of saying that uh, he's disagreeing with what you were putting up as some of the popular sentiment. That anybody who says that we can just say... We can just, like, get rid of it and not treat the actual practicalities of the issue is also wrong. Yes, yes. Okay, that's, that's better said than I could say it. Uh... On the sub and this is a continued quote, On this subject of treating it as a wrong and limiting its spread, let me say a word. Has anything ever threatened the existence of this union save and accept this very institution of slavery? What is it that we hold most dear among us? Our own liberty and prosperity. What has ever threatened our liberty and prosperity save and accept this institution of slavery? If this is true, how do you propose to improve the condition of things by enlarging slavery? by spreading it out and making it bigger. You may have a when or cancer upon your person and not be able to cut it out lest you bleed to death, but surely it is no way to cure it, to engraft it and spread it over your whole body. That is no proper way of treating what you regard as a wrong. You see this peaceful way of dealing with it as a wrong, 
restricting the spread of it and not allowing it to go to new, into new countries where it has not already existed. That is the peaceful way, the old-fashioned way, the way in which the fathers themselves set us the example. And so the, the context, the historical context here is the admission of new states to the Union. Because at this point, the northern states don't have slavery. The southern states do. And so senators from the northern states are obviously going to be anti-slavery. Senators from the southern states are obviously going to be pro-slavery. So the question is, when new states are admitted, are they going to be admitted as slave states or free states? Because that tips the balance of Congress. Exactly. That's the that's the issue here about introducing to new areas. Um, exactly. And fun fun fact that's basically why um, some of the some of the states are uh, arranged in the way that they they are is simply uh, simply to bring in uh, sort of new uh, new votes. Um, they're very very quick. Some of the states were kind of kind of quickly uh, put in the pipeline a little bit faster than you would have thought because the they wanted more free states. Um, hmm. So, for example, Oregon gets, like, rushed through statehood right before the Civil War as a free state. Hmm. Like, it's kind of weird that Oregon was a state before, like, a lot of the things in between were states. Right, right. So that looks bad, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it does um, look like a kind, a kind of, a kind of shifty political move. Yeah, some political engineering going on there. Um, thank you for adding that. Um, if you had more, if you have more to say, of course. Um, uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. I just wanted to, yeah, bring bring that up. That yeah, it's uh. That's the the whole issue is about new states that that they're talking about. Kind of the yeah, California of course was also admitted in the eighteen fifties, um, pretty quickly. Yeah, well, it's it that doesn't look so hot to the Southerners, right? They feel mm -hmm. like they're getting kind of edged out, right? Yep. So I'll continue with Lincoln here. On the other hand, I have said there is a sentiment which treats it as not being wrong. That is the democratic sentiment of this day. I do not mean to say that every man who stands within that range positively asserts that it is right. That class will include all who positively assert that it is right, and all who, like Judge Douglas, treat it as indifferent and do not say it is either right or wrong. These two classes of men fall within the general class of those who do not look upon it as a wrong. And if there be among you anybody who supposes that he, as a Democrat, can consider himself as much opposed to slavery as anybody, I would like to reason with him. You never treat it as a wrong. What other thing that you consider as a wrong do you deal with as you deal with that? Perhaps you say it is wrong, but your leader never does, and you quarrel with anybody who says it is wrong. Although you pretend to say so yourself, you can find no fit place to deal with it as a wrong. You must not say anything about it in the free states because it, because it is not there. You must not say anything about it in the slave states because it is there. You must not say anything about it in the pulpit because that is religion and has nothing to do with it. You must not say anything about it in politics because that will disturb the security of my place. There is no place to talk about it as being a wrong, although you say, yourse although you say yourself it is a wrong. But finally, you will screw yourself up to the belief that the people of the st slave states should adopt a system of gradual emancipation on the slavery question, you would be if in favor of it. You would be in favor of it. You get that it is 
I'm sorry. <clears throat> you say that it is getting in the getting it in the right place, and you would be glad to see it succeed. But you are deceiving yourself. You all know that flank uh, that Frank Blair and Gratz Brown down there in St. Louis undertook to introduce that system in Missouri. They fought as valiantly as they could for the system of gradual emancipation, which you pretend would be you would be glad to see succeed. Now, now I will bring you to the test. After a hard fight, they were beaten. And when the news came over here, you threw up your hats and hurrayed for democracy. Hurrahed, I guess, but whatever. The democratic po policy in regard to that institution will not tolerate the merest breath, the slightest hint of the least degree of wrong about it. Try it by some of Judge Douglas's arguments. He says he don't care whether it is voted up or voted down in the territories. I do not my care myself in dealing with that expression, whether it is intended to be expressive of his individual sentiments on the subject or only of the national policy he desires to have established. It is alike valuable for my purpose. Any man can say that <clears throat> any man can say that who does not see anything wrong in slavery, but no man can logically say it who does see a wrong in it, because no man can logically say he doesn't I'm sorry, he said this he said this wrong. Um <laughs> because no man can logically say that he don't care whether a wrong is voted up or voted down. He may say he don't care whether an indifferent thing is voted up or down, but he must logically have a choice between a right thing and a wrong thing. He contends that whatever community wants slaves has a right to have them, so they have it if it is not a wrong. But if it is a wrong, he cannot say people have a right to do wrong. He says that upon the score of equality, slaves should be allowed to go in a new territory like other property. This is strictly logical if there is no difference between it and other property. If it and other property are equal, his argument is entirely logical. But if you insist that one is wrong and the other is right, there is no use to institute a comparison between right and wrong. You may turn over everything in the democratic policy from beginning to end, whether in the shape it takes on the statute book, in the shape it takes in the Dred Scott decision, in the shape it takes in conversation, or in the shape it takes in short maxim-like arguments. It everywhere carefully excludes the idea that there is anything wrong with it. That is the real issue. That is the issue that will continue in this country when these poor tongues of Judge Douglas and myself shall be silent. It is the eternal struggle between these two principles, right and wrong, throughout the world. They are the two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time and will ever continue to struggle. The one is the common right of humanity and the other is the divine right of kings. It is the same principle in whatever shape it develops itself. It is the same spirit that says, you work and toil and earn bread and I'll eat it. No matter in what shape it comes, whether from the mouth of a king who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation and live by the fruit of their labor, or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another race, it is the same tyrannical principle. I was glad to express my gratitude at Quincy, and I re-express it here to Judge Douglas that he looks to no end of the institution of slavery. That will help the people to see where the struggle really is. It will hereafter place with us all men who really do wish the wrong may have an end, and whenever he can get rid of the fog which obscures the real question, when we can get Judge Douglas and his friends to avow a policy looking to its perpetuation, we can get out from among that class of men and bring them to the side of those who treat it as a wrong. Then there will soon be an end of it, and that end will be its ultimate extinction. Whenever the issue can be distinctly made and all extraneous matter thrown out so that men can fairly seal the see the real differences between the parties, this controversy will soon be settled and it will, be, it will be done peaceably too. There will be no war, no violence. It will be placed again where the wisest and best men of the world placed it. Hey, 
Well, there was war, and there was violence, and it was all stupid. <laughs> what do you think of that? Did you did anything pop up for you? Well, I got to say I was disappointed that there there weren't more bits where I got to chime in with the parenthetical audience participation. Well, you have to assume that the audience was simply spellbound at Lincoln's rhetoric and yeah, his logic. That's, that's 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 probably the that's probably the the result there. I mean, presumably he was spitting a lot more fire than I was just there. Um but, you know, this is this is where he's moralizing it. He's saying the Republican Party and its core goal of eliminating slavery in the United States uh, is right, morally and just morally right. And the Democrats who are sort of weaseling their way around this issue back in the day are wrong. So you see how he's framing it up here in this debate. I don't think this was the last thing he said, um, or this was his last address in the debate, but you can see how this is going, right? Mm-hmm. It's becoming, if you're a good Christian, if you're a good Christian Republican American, you will get rid of this thing and you will care about nothing else. And if you don't, you're evil. <laughs> you're an evil Democrat. <clears throat> so there's your frame. There's your moral frame. Uh, and that moral certitude carried on and i would say was um uh, uh, weaponized is that the right yeah, word yeah i think guess? weaponized is fair to use there yeah and whenever you weaponize um the morality of uh, a people it's it builds a root in their consciousness which pretty much doesn't go away ever and that root can be exploited in the future by people who say things like this is just like Nazi Germany, right? Um, you can you can revive that moral sensibility that's built in this rhetoric and in this uh, this branding, so to speak, uh, for years to come. And you can also pervert it. Um, one thing I actually didn't mention, which I meant to put in this episode, is that Karl Marx really liked Abraham Lincoln. He actually sent him a letter. Yeah, I think you mentioned that last time, didn't you? Did I? Yeah, but I, maybe I maybe I needed to do a little more detail on it because I um, it's very interesting why he liked him. But uh, I don't mean to I don't mean to say that. Well, Marx liked Lincoln, so Lincoln was bad. Uh, it's just like these are the ideas that were getting play back then, right? Um, people were after the freedom, of the worker, the slave, the downtrodden, right? You're getting you're getting statues from France that have. You know, they're holding a big torch guiding in, you know, the tired and the poor. And I know it didn't say that initially, but, um, you know, this is the sensibility is like, this is a place where people come to be free, you know, and we're going to give you that freedom, right? It's not a wild land where you're just free to get killed by a bear, right? Um, the, the story of America is changing and Lincoln is the puppet master who's pulling all the strings. And I don't, you know, I, I said in the last episode, jokingly, that, you know, I hate Abraham Lincoln. I don't, I don't get, I don't get that much rise on him as I used to, um, where I'd be like, oh, he was the best, or, oh, he was the worst. I'm more like, this guy was a wizard. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Oh yeah. Like he's, oh, yeah. he's playing underwater chess, you know? Um, and I don't even know if he was necessarily conscious of it. I, I think probably Lincoln, as far as I've read, it feels like he naturally tapped into the, the conch, like the, uh, the mind, the collective mind of the American people as a whole. Um, and he was digging up all of these old feelings about we used to be, you know, slaves. We used to be servants to a king and, and now we're doing it to other people and we can't allow that. And, and don't you feel like a hypocrite being okay with this? And he was, he was, he was the man of the hour. You know, he was just the right guy in the right place at the exact right time um, to make the changes he was going to make. And that's why I'm saying he's like a esoteric, magical wizard character and not really like a normal president. And I think that's why he draws so much ire. There's a couple of people and there's only a few people in history that are like this, where you can find people who absolutely hate this person and people who absolutely love him. It's just like Andrew Jackson. Know what I mean? Mm, oh yeah, I know I'm pontificating a lot. I I think <laughs> I feel like you probably have more to say, <laughs> but no, no, I'm just I'm just I'm still digesting. That was a long speech, so I'm just yeah, I'm, I'm still just sort of looking back over it and digesting it. Yeah, but it's very it's it is a very interesting section, and I, I might cut some of it out in editing just because it is so long. But this is where I really started to notice Lincoln in his own words doing this. You know, it's the it's the right thing to do to vote for me. So, anyway, I thought I was going to be able to finish this in two parts, but obviously that's not happening at this this point. Um, I'm going to be working on this the next part very very quickly after finishing getting this part out. Um, in fact, I have a week off for vacation right now, so I'm going to work on it all week, and we'll talk about the Civil Woo! War. Yay! Um, and but we won't get too into the weeds on that because I want to focus more on who you know who Lincoln was and what got him ultimately blasted in the head with a lady pistol um so we'll discuss why these people wanted him dead and briefly briefly cover the guy who killed him um briefly of course because we already did the longer version on episode one of this podcast which you should not listen to because it's the first podcast I ever made <laughs> and it's not that the information's bad but I'm just not as fun <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, I included this as a bonus for you. Um, in the interest of refocusing ourselves on Lincoln, I think we should have a fun time reviewing some of these political cartoons from the air. <laughs> do you see these? I, I do see them. Yes, and, and they're rather interesting, aren't they? Uh, would you care to Where are talk they from? Uh, these are from a website... Um, called i think uh harp week um and it's just a collection of political cartoons about lincoln specifically from the north the south all over the states and what people thought of him and there is so much variety um there's such a variety of takes on this guy he's usually portrayed well but a lot of times he's portrayed as a blundering fool um particularly with this one where you've got a bunch of very obvious racial caricatures dancing around him like he's the greatest thing in the world. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's a mistake that there's a rabbi standing behind him. Oh, and um, he's labeled as King Abraham. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, it's like, 
I don't know. But th this is a this is the kind of thing you would you would see. I I actually almost did a video on a couple of these, but I decided against it because I couldn't make enough. I couldn't make a clear point on what I was trying to say. I just find all this stuff very very interesting, and uh, I would I would read this, but um, I'm not going to. Because <laughs> yeah, why don't we? Work. Why don't we start? I feel like we should start with these next time instead of yeah. a normal picture. Yeah, maybe we'll, maybe I'll pick one of these for next time. Um, but I'm not going to read this one because uh, it would require me to do uh, an offensive accent, which I don't <laughs> care to do. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, it would, wouldn't it? Uh, the second one, of course, that I have here is is another one about the financial state of America, and it portrays Lincoln as more of a Chad. Like, look at that big, strong jaw. He's wrapped in an American flag. He appears to have a sword. Um, he's oh, just. Yes. It looks like the Chad meme, doesn't it? Like it the does. yes meme. It kind of does, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I included a couple of these just for your interest. So, And since the listeners can't see them, uh, I would refer them to Harp Week. <laughs> you can read all of them and, and be completely shocked at how racist they all are. <laughs> um, very, very different times. But yeah, no, I think definitely part three will wrap it up and it'll be the conclusion of this Lincoln story and we'll talk a little bit about why he was so hated by the end. And, it, you know, in the beginning of his presidency, he literally caused a civil war. That that so, did happen. That did yeah, happen. The only president to cause an American civil war. <laughs> Since then, it's just been the CIA causing civil wars in other countries. <laughs> ah, the American way. The American way. You know, just to to land this plane a tiny bit, there was a whole section in Far Cry 3 about a CIA character who did this. He was trying to start a civil war. And he's a recurring character. He appears in every game after Far Cry Is he 3. The, this, that's the one I kept beating with the bat in Far Cry yeah. 5. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's in every game trying to start a civil war. I guarantee he's in the latest one. But Flow honestly... in the darks are not welcome in Montana. No. <laughs> Well, with all that said, I think it's probably time to head up to the surface. We have done Lincoln to death, and next time, hey, uh, uh, uh. we'll actually get to his death. Ah. <laughs> so, Aaron, if you had to guess how long it's going to be before we finally wrap on Abraham Lincoln, what would you say? Oh, about a thousand years, I guess. <laughs> that seems seems reasonable. Seems reasonable for such a monumental figure. Yeah, um, I'm gonna like I said, I'm gonna try to have less of a gap between the second part and the third part because it's not Christmas and uh, it's not New Year's, and I'm I have vacation. Um, I'm assuming you've got some stuff in the pipe, but I don't want you to spoil it necessarily. But yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm still working on the the stuff I talked about on the patron episode. Oh yes, yes, yes. It's going to be good stuff, but on that note, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably, um, a normie? <laughs> so consider funding the show with your normie bucks by becoming a patron on Patreon.com or, as we're calling you from now on, Shovel Bearers. If Patreon or shovel burying is not your thing, you can drop us a little tip in Venmo or you can do, uh, you know, you pay, pay the, uh, Pay the boatman, you know, across the river. Two bucks on Patreon. Eh? That's at WTADP if you want to do the Venmo route, though. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. 
And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of, oh, dear God, the Haitian Revolution play you out.